When I got into the lifestyle, it was freedom from a lot of things. And then once you are free from those things, you're like, well, what's, what's all this freedom for? Like, what am I actually moving towards instead of away from? Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Oh, I think this one's going to be fun. Today, I have to apologize for the jackhammer in the background, but it is in the theme of today's episode. I got to do this podcast, whether these guys stop jackhammering or not. I am on the road here in Barakai Island with the boss man, and we are doing some 2020 business planning. It's really been amazing, and uh, you're going to hear about some of that on the show in upcoming weeks. But today's show is going to confront a somewhat controversial theme in the location-independent lifestyle space, one we've been chatting about in the production team for a while. We've been calling it something like the digital nomad lie, a little bit hypey, but it's really about misconceptions and also mistakes one can make, and certainly I've made in the way you think about travel. And recently, this debate was given a really interesting contribution over at a great podcast episode by Justin and Joe of the Empire Flippers. In that interview, which we, of course, link to in the show notes of this episode, was with Mark Manson, the amazingly successful author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a You-Know-What. And in that podcast, Mark mentioned that he felt there were diminishing returns of just clocking up endless visits to more and more countries. And here at the TMBA, we felt there was some more to say about this not least of which because you can go out there and read on the web endless digital nomad blogs with a version of something like, it's been fun, but I'm exhausted from hauling my backpack around and I really just want a home and a great desk. And so this sort of idea of the digital nomad lie, the myth of that it's so wonderful for your business to be sitting on beaches and sipping coconuts, something I might mention I've been doing quite a bit of this week. So anyway, we thought it would be fun to offer up some thoughts, and to invite yours. And so to help me, I've asked back someone who is going through a self-concessed minor PTTE herself or a post-traumatic traveling experience. One of my favorite regular co-hosts here at the TMBA pod, Kyla Gardner from kylagardner.com. We're going to talk about some of our experiences and also share some of our all-time travel mistakes, many of them, in fact, somewhat related to this concept of the digital nomad lie. So let's get to it. I started out by asking Kyla about when her travel experiences first began. I had an expired passport. I had been to a resort in Mexico as my only international experience, which does not count at all. I lived my entire life in Chicago in the U.S. And then when I was 26, I got a job uh, working for a software company that was a nomadic company, but I had to go for training in Vietnam. So flew over to Vietnam for three months. Then the company moved to Bangkok. I spent like a year-ish in Bangkok, then bootstrapping my own thing. And then I just went nomadic and I've like circled the world maybe three or four times in the last two years. And now I'm kind of sick of it. Let's talk about your first impressions of like showing up in Vietnam. What did that feel like? Just mind-blowing in every, every way. There was the jet lag at first to deal with because I had never taken a flight that was more than six hours. And I was so like hopped up on adrenaline and fear and excitement that whole flight. And I was just like going through a ton of TMBA episodes. <laughs> and then once I got there, I didn't want to miss anything. So I just didn't sleep for like a month. But I also was dropped into this company with people from all over the world. This whole entrepreneurship thing I had never explored before. I was just a journalist before. And everything was just totally different at once. And it was so exciting. So moving to a new country, overrated or underrated? I think we'll talk about this with Mark Manson. But <laughs> perfectly rated if it's like your first one, but overrated once you're moving from new country to new country. 
All right, let's dig into one of the reasons we were inspired to do this episode. We have a lot of open thoughts. So the concept is going to be travel mistakes instead of travel tips. But we both listened to an interview with Mark Manson over at the Empire Flippers podcast. We thought we could use this question as sort of the frame for the conversation, which is Mark Manson was talking about his life uh, as an author, but also as a traveler. And he said that traveling has diminishing returns. And he talked about, you know, you go to one, two, three countries and it's a life-changing experience, but you continue to go to five, six, seven, eight, and not so much. And you know, a lot of people experience this thing that I think Mark's pointing to, which is sort of a travel fatigue. I think he's 100% right. In my experience, I've like forgotten why I'm traveling at some point, just because now that's what I'm doing, because at some point it was giving me something back. So I just keep doing it, but I'm not getting those same returns, yet it has the same costs. Right. That's a very interesting way to look at it. Because, I mean, for me, I thought... Uh, I don't want to quite accept Mark's idea. And, and what I thought was, if you narrow down his focus to critiquing kind of like a perma-traveler digital nomad mindset, then sure. If you're just arbitrarily going around to go around, in other words, travel for the sake of travel. That said, like, I think the modality that I've mostly been exploring and a lot of the people in the DC community have been exploring isn't that at all. And that's one of the things we're going to get to today is like people aren't just traveling around for the sake of traveling around. There's a lot of like strategic advantages, intellectual advantages, relationships, all this stuff that I just don't think is quite covered by this sort of blanket idea. And I think his critique was pretty implicit that he was essentially talking about digital nomads. And so I'm going to define a digital nomad as someone who makes money on the internet, who travels in the model of a backpacker. Like this is a relatively new idea that emerged with like sort of the hippie trail and lonely planet and like sort of the opening of the borders of, of Asia. And all of a sudden became an opportunity for Westerners particularly to start doing these like pilgrimages around the world. For me, like the sort of cultural totem for this is the beach, the movie that sort of you know, like summed up. And I think the, of course, the old school backpackers would object to Leonardo DiCaprio being the figurehead for their movement. But he did, I think, fairly represent kind of like what's amazing about the idea of the backpacker and also what's broken about it. So this is my definition of a digital nomad, which is sort of someone who makes money online somehow and then uses their role model as the backpacker or gap year traveler. Fair enough? I think that's a great definition, yeah. So let's then contrast that with the expatriate. Typically, the model would be like the foreign executive who relocates to a new country for typically years at a time in order to pursue a career, pursue opportunities, basically. What the expatriate's doing is like, building a career in a new place and everything that follows from that, their experience will be much, much different. Of course, there's other kinds of expatriate models too. Like there's the retirement model, mm -hmm. which I don't think is particularly interesting for TMBA folks. There's also kind of like a bunch of like dropouty kind of expatriate scripts, endless summer kind of stare at the sunset sort of model. Yeah. I think that clearly is not of ultimate interest to our listeners. The sort of business person who relocates would be like the model of the expatriate for me. I agree, yeah. So I'm tempted to say that then the location-independent entrepreneur is much more in the mold of like a traditional expatriate, whereas the digital nomad is going to places for the excitement of going there for the sake of having gone there. Because I think the digital nomad... The, the problematic element of that is sort of inherent in the definition. And that's why I wanted to lay out the definition. One term that I think is worth taking a stab at is slow travel. Do you have an understanding of what this means? Because it's a term that we're tossing around. I think it's a term that a lot of us relate to, but I don't, I don't know if anybody's really sat down and sort of dug through what it might mean. Yeah, I think it's hard to put a like, time frame on it. 
like the general definition of slow travel, I think would be people who are just, I'm taking six months off of work and traveling. And then, yeah, if you're spending two weeks or three weeks in one location, that's a lot for when you're just traveling. But for people who are more working and traveling, like spending two or three weeks somewhere is nothing. Nothing. My starting point, I would say, is six months. I was going to say three. Okay. I've done a lot of three in the past two years. I still think it's, it's too short. Why? Because I think it takes like really a month to really get into that routine if it's a new place to you and you're starting from scratch. And then you've got a month of that routine. And then the next month is like preparing for the next location and starting to pull up your roots a bit. So you really, you like, you get four weeks of really solid routine and that's nothing. Right. One of the most effective models of slow travel I've seen is indefinite. So one of the problems emotionally can happen, like if you know you're pulling up stakes in a month, it can like really affect your experience in a place. So one option with slow travel is just to move and then I'm here Mm -hmm. indefinitely until like the next thing comes up. There's something like more in the digital nomad take on when like you're moving to place to place every three months. That to me still falls in like the traveler camp instead of the expatriate camp. So the expatriate is moving until the job's done, you know, is moving Mm -hmm. until the next job comes up. And I think if people on the road are struggling emotionally with how they're feeling about their travel, you might explore this idea of like, maybe the next location I visit will be for a vacation or to visit a friend or to go to a conference rather than I'm pulling up all of my roots. I'm getting rid of all of my routines and I'm going to start over somewhere new. For me, slow travel, I like your idea of six months and maybe ideally we're talking about years, not months here. Mm -hmm. And then home base. One of the things I see in the community is that I think when travelers are out on the road for a while, the grass is always greener, right? So mm-hmm. there's a lot of exalting of this idea of a home and like really kind of digging into what it might mean. Meanwhile, when you like talk to people with a home, you go back to, to people who've made that sort of investment, you realize that like that can be quite a tenuous concept as well. For me, a home base is essentially the place where your people and your projects are. I guess. I mean, that's the way I would define it. I was thinking more of an ease back into a life there. Like how quickly can you get set up once you arrive with your gym, with knowing what restaurants you like or what people you're going to hang out with? Even if you keep returning to the same city, sometimes I feel like even getting a new apartment like negates the home base (laughs) because it's a whole nother set of like annoying little things you have to figure out and worry about before you arrive. Like So home base, if you're there for a lot of the year and you can just step off the plane and you know that you've got everything set up. Fair enough. You could say, well, that's not really a home. Hmm. And I think we'll leave that question open for right now. A few more things I want to talk about before we get to our top travel mistakes. But there is an open question of like, if this slow travel opportunity is on the table, like how might one slow travel? So uh, here's just a few options. The home base explorer is a common one I see. It's a bit of a pejorative, but I can do it because I've been this person, which is you're basically like constantly going around with your tuning fork, trying to find the place that's going to like be your home finally. I like tried process of elimination for a couple of years, which is not the way to do it because I was like, oh, I like Bangkok, but let me just like try 20 other cities. Oh, yeah. And then I didn't like any of them more than Bangkok. <laughs> so there's the home base explorer. There's the honeybee. Like I imagine a honeybee would go around and pollinate the same sort of plants over and over. And so this would be the person that has multiple bases around the world that they go to regularly. And this is not a new thing for digital entrepreneurs. You have a summer house, you have a winter house if you can afford it and you you go back and forth. You have the digital nomad, which is the person who's just like, I can travel anywhere, I can see anything, the next thing's the best thing. I'm that's I'm homeless. Yes. And then you have a hub and spoke model or like what I see a lot of people doing is called nine then three. So you're building a family, you have the kids in school, like whatever you have a community that you care about locally, you see the value in that investment, 
but then you spend three months elsewhere. And this is a classic snowbird. Like this is what wealthy people have always done. Get out of the winter, you know? And so this is a very common setup I'm seeing amongst people that have location independence. But all of these categories, Kyla, are not immune to the downfalls of having so much freedom and flexibility in your life. There's a common expatriate saying. It always comes back to me. And so I have to mention it, which is you kind of like say the country's name and then you comma and then you say, it's good until it isn't. It's this idea that like, like when you get off that plane, you're full of the excitement and everything feels gravy there for a while. Like your life has changed. You're meeting new people. Like your whole life is sort of like infused. And then it's good until it isn't. Like the cows come home and they come home in a variety of forms. It could come home in a medical disaster. It could come home in a oh my gosh, it's still me that's here, right? (laughs) Everywhere I go, I'm still there. So the same problems that I was looking to get away from back home, those problems showed their head in the new place as well. I was reading an article that traveling is often sold as you, you know, you better yourself, but it's also very easy to become a worse person by traveling. Like you're in a new community where people don't know you very well. So maybe no one notices if you slowly become an alcoholic. Yes. Or, you know, in Thailand, you can be weighted on hand and foot in a way you can't back in the States. And maybe that makes you kind of an asshole. Like, it's very easy to just become worse through travel as well as better. Absolutely. I mean, I've heard certain people describe the constant traveler as necessarily a person with problems. Like, what is wrong with this person that's constantly going around? And There's interesting questions to ask. I mean, one of the things that I thought of was, do you feel comfortable with the asset that you're building? I was speaking with an entrepreneur the other day and we were both reveling this idea of like, all my friends are here and we're doing this and it really is amazing. But in this lifestyle, one day you're going to wake up and they're all going to be gone. And the question that we were exploring together was, do we feel comfortable with the asset that we're walking away with if we wake up one morning and everybody's peaced? So interesting. So we're all set up to dig into some long-term travel mistakes. And as the guest, I will defer to you. Okay. So my first travel mistake is that I've underestimated the logistics of traveling. This is the final boarding call for passengers Aaron and Fred Collins booked on flight 372A to Kansas City. There's a reason that tour companies are a business, travel agents have jobs. Like, this is enough work for it to be someone's full-time job. And so people romanticize traveling, but it's really just so many logistics of where am I sleeping? How am I getting there? What am I doing once I'm there? How am I doing this? I don't speak the language. And I got this really helpful framework from someone who was saying, so the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? This like. So it's a pyramid where you can't move to the next step until you've completed the step before. And it's like what motivates people. So on the bottom, you have your physiological and your safety needs like food and a roof over your head. Then you get to community. Then you get to self-esteem, like having a job you enjoy. And then the highest one is self-actualization, which is like becoming the best you you can be. And so at the bottom of this, I've seen the digital nomad version of Wi-Fi at the bottom. Right, before. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're traveling a lot, you're just constantly refiguring those bottom two steps of the pyramid to the detriment of really being able to dive into the next three, which are like the meaningful parts of life. But I think that's a helpful way to look at it and then weighing at some point is taking on putting the energy into this worth what I'm getting back. It's interesting because they are, at the beginning, really exciting problems to solve. Mm -hmm. And then you fast forward a year or something, and you're like, I'm a secretary, essentially. (laughs) I am running a travel guide business for myself. Right. And I also think like outsourcing it's pretty tough too. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, 
I feel like that that kind of like four hour work week, get a personal assistant to like do your travel planning. Mm, I'm not so sure that that works that that well. So I agree with that. All right. So my first mistake, Kyla, was that being naive to the long term power of time zone differential. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> I hope everybody out, out there in the audience is like, Amen. Amen. <laughs> Let's complain more about the wonders of travel. So here's the thing. The power of time zone differential is very real. And it's not always bad. Sometimes it's amazing being on a different time zone from people. So let's talk about it. In the early days of Ian and myself's business, the way our relationship worked and how much energy it gave us, I would wake up in the morning. He was in West Coast time zone. And I would call him over coffee and we'd have like an hour-long strategic conversation every morning, and that was right after his workday. So I think it was like 7 p.m. for him, 6 years, and that really worked for him. That's like right when he was walking out of the office. And so it was like this really nice ballet of like the baton being passed onto me, and that day I was going to move certain things forward in the business. Now, fast forward to 2015, we sell that business. Now we're forced to figure out a new way forward for the business, one where we're working more collaboratively. And this time zone differential really asserted itself as one of the major issues in our business, actually, because all of a sudden, an hour strategic overview simply wasn't enough to find ways to collaborate, to get new projects off the ground. As a response to that, when people are asking me here, you know, what is one of the biggest initiatives in your business this past year? It was to be in the same time zone as Ian more often, like just simply that. That's very powerful. Now, let's look at the other side of the token. I was hanging out with a friend here in Chiang Mai the other day, and he lives in America. In America, when you live in America, there's a lot of things that happen every day. The president says things. The NFL plays football games. There's all kinds of local politics that you're supposed to vote in. There's a birthday party you've been invited to. There's old high school reunions going on down the street. There's all kinds of stuff you got to do. Now, you come to Asia, you get on a plane for 20 hours, you wake up in the morning. The football game has been nicely reduced to a five-minute highlight clip on YouTube. And the statement that my friend said to me is he's like, I totally get it. It's 10 a.m. I've gone through all of my correspondence and all the day's news, kind of like that emotional, like what's going on in my world. And the, the way he described it was like, I have my whole day to myself now. So there is this enormous power if what you want to do is be reflective, if you want to write a book, if you want to do creative work, if you want to be an affiliate marketer. There's, there's a bunch of things that are really can be buttressed by this time zone disconnect. If you, maybe if you're running a company, you're, you could just say my customer service people are on the same time as my customers or whatever. In other words, there's no one size fits all answer so long as you understand the power of time zone disconnect. I agree. It has its faults. Another, like going back to my logistics thing, I'm not going to expect all my friends back home or in whatever countries to do the math of, they don't know where I'm living. They don't know what time it is there. Like I have to do all that work of like figuring out the time zones and presenting them options for calls and stuff, which is another just like annoying logistical thing. But I agree. It's so freeing to be awake when you feel like everybody else is asleep. <laughs> I'll tell you what, what I've seen over the years is that people try to swim against this tide. And what I'm suggesting is just leverage it. Like I know for certain team members, if we're going to be on opposite sides of the world, we have to like really be honest with ourselves about what that's going to mean. In other words, our collaboration is just going to be really cut down. If you're running a client-oriented business and you're living on the other side of the world as your clients, think about the long-term effect that that's going to have on your business for those in the early few years, I would even suggest if you're really committed to your time zone, changing your business model. Like it's that big of a deal. I've had handfuls and handfuls of friends staying up late at night to do client phone calls. Just don't do it. Like growing a business is hard enough. Don't stack the deck against you by hiring people or working with clients in time zones that you're not committed to. There's also like outsourcing things or having team members in the opposite time zone where at the end of your day, you say, hey, can you do all of this? And then you go to sleep and a second later, it's all done when you wake up and then you can Super just move smart. forward. Yeah. 
Hey, what up, listeners? By now, you'll be well aware that we've had an amazing sponsor the last quarter of this year. His name is Travis Jamison, and he's the guy behind Smash Digital and Smash VC. His team has been sharing their years of tried and tested SEO experience with listeners of this show through their free mini audits. If you haven't gotten yours yet, head over to smashdigital.com slash TMBA. I thought it would be a good moment to give Travis a call and ask him why he decided to write us such a large sponsorship check. I grew up with the Tropical MBA. That's where I, I learned half the stuff I know. Like These are my people that I align with, that I understand. Why did you guys decide to do free SEO audits for the TMBA listeners? Is this just a ruthless client generation tactic? So it's actually not. I think what we're doing mostly is showing that, hey, we really know what we're talking about. I would say 99% of anyone who's gotten an audit back, they're usually impressed with the amount of information, like usable information that we give them. Yeah, you did one for me. It was eye-opening to say the least. You guys are unique though in, I wouldn't call you necessarily thirsty for new clients. Do you know what I mean by that? Our long-term goal is to stop taking clients. Our long-term goal is to just work on our own internal projects and like partnerships that we've created over the years with different companies. Like sometimes clients get, you know, a nice ROI and everybody's happy. But then sometimes clients come in, we literally make them millions of dollars. And it just kind of seems silly to be charging a couple grand a month for that when we can be doing so much more for ourselves and being able to wrap ourselves completely around a project. You know, SEO is only one side of it. There's, there's so many other things besides SEO that really go into it. And our team has so many years of experience that it just makes sense to, to start doing that. We're on month three of you underwriting the show or being the sponsor. What's like the narrative that Smash Digital has about this campaign? Our entire brand is built on word of mouth. We haven't advertised until now. The company's like close to nine years old at this point. We felt like it was time to put ourselves out there a little bit. And we even gotten some people saying like, oh, you guys are still doing this? So we're just letting them know like, hey, we're still here. We're still crushing it. Doing the same stuff, only better and higher quality. The one and only Travis Jamison, everyone, of Smash Digital and, of course, Smash VC. Check out those aforementioned free SEO audits at smashdigital.com slash TMBA. All right, your number two. My number two is overrating places, underrating communities. It was a really life-changing experience for me when I first moved abroad. I spent a lot of time in Saigon and then Bangkok and just like grew in every sense of the word. I was new to entrepreneurship. I started taking care of my health. I stopped drinking a lot. I started a side hustle that eventually became my business I have now. Self-actualization. Self-actualization. And I romanticized those cities. I think I give the cities too much credit for that because I think it was the people that I was around. I was dropped into this entrepreneur community, people from all over the world, people who just thought so differently than anyone I had met before introducing me to all these books, to this podcast. And so when I've gone back to Bangkok or Saigon, I think I half expected it to be a bit more amazing than it was, but I was just romanticizing like the person I was at that time. And I'm a different person now and going through different things. And the cities also didn't have those communities anymore. It was just a canvas, in other words. Yeah. It was like a pre-selection criteria. Like if people had made it to Saigon, they had heard about what was going on there and they could afford to do it in whatever way they were doing it. You knew they were going to be super cool, interesting people just by being in Saigon. All right. So my number two then is not defining a life and a job for myself. So in other words, going overboard on freedom and flexibility. This is a weird one. What do I mean by defining a life and a job for myself? I felt like when I got into the lifestyle, what emotionally started to disconcert me is that I felt like I started getting walked on by others. 
And I know, like, look, if I'm, if it's not bad enough that we're complaining about travel and freedom and flexibility, I'm also now complaining at another level, which is that I didn't respect my own boundaries and I didn't respect my own values because all of a sudden you're in this exploratory phase, you're, you're learning things, you're meeting people. And all of a sudden I started to find myself on other people's schedules all the time. And then the simple thing dawned on me that I don't have a schedule. I don't have any pushback because everybody else has these real things in their lives. They have real jobs, real responsibilities. And so in negotiations with myself and with others, I found myself essentially always giving more than I ultimately had to give because I'd never really had a strong personal constitution about what I needed. The truth is, is that you could do anything. You could take a Wednesday off. You could go to that thing that someone invited you to next month or whatever. You could do everything in theory, but if you do everything, you might not end up doing anything at the end of the day. And so the way I combated this idea of not defining a life and a job for myself is I, I got used to the idea of arbitrarily setting a schedule as if I had a job, as if I had those responsibilities, and then defending them against others. Maybe like a, a simple example of this would be I'd have you know friends on the other side of the world that would essentially say, well, come visit me for three weeks because you can. Okay, on the one hand, it's true. But on the other hand, if I do have the stated aim of growing X kind of company, like if you had a serious career, you can't just bail out of it for three weeks, like multiple times a year. And then you live in this fantasy world that you're actually going to get stuff done while you're visiting your friend. And by the way, like the other thing that can start to grate on this stuff is like, say you did go on that three-week trip that your friend just asked you, like what was their investment? Like getting on the phone and making an argument costs nothing. I found myself in multiple times in life, like sitting at this agreed upon trip and just realizing like, man, I kind of made a bad deal here because the other person wasn't as invested as I was because I really had to give up a lot to do this. And for them, it was convenient to ask their flexible friend to do whatever. Mm -hmm. And so again, I don't, this isn't like sour oats. This is simply like, there's other downsides to not defining a life and a job that are very concrete. For example, no one knew where I was going to be. So of course, my friends were always asking, my family was always asking me to come visit them because how are they going to come visit me? They didn't know where I was going to be. So I immediately started going the other way and just arbitrarily saying like, this is where I am. This is how long I'm going to be there. And of course, you can always deviate from the plan. But I found that getting over that resistance to defining a plan and committing to one made all the difference in the world because now it's like, I know my business goals. I know where I'm living and I have this real weight behind it that I can end up negotiating other powerful forces in my life. Just one note on this point, producer Jane dropped in here and I thought it was really cool. She said, if you need a routine to be productive at home, why would it be any different when you travel? And this is basically just it. And I think if you do define those things, then that's more positive than going with the flow. It's easy to set out just being excited about the freedom and not thinking that you have to do all that work of defining those boundaries. Because it's a lot of work of like, what do I value? What do I actually want to get done today? Versus like, what's easy to do is just like hang out with someone all day. Totally. Yeah, it does feel like a lot of work. And But you know, I think one of the themes of this show is something you brought up, which is the freedom is in the ability to commit. Hey, now I can commit to growing my vision for a location-independent business and yeah, I'm not going to take up every opportunity that comes to the door because I have a clear sense of gravity myself. And so sometimes we can lose that gravity when we start to move around the world. For me, I was, like you mentioned, people are like, what are you running from? When I got into the lifestyle, I was, it was freedom from a lot of things. It was freedom from a nine to five, from Chicago winter, from all my obligations, from a certain way of thinking. And then once you are free from those things. You're like, well, what's, what's all this freedom for? Like, what am I actually moving towards instead of away from? You nailed it. Absolutely. And it took me a while to get hip to that. And that's my number two failure. I have a small tack onto that because I identify with it. And I think I'm naturally a people pleaser. And I just read this thing that was like, no is a full sentence. <laughs> 
Because it's hard to say, no, I have to like go for my massage. So we have to change this or no, I'm working on my book today. But I also feel this with the fear of being travel shamed. Like when you meet someone and then you get to know each other a bit and they like learn that you're traveling and they're like, oh my God, that's so cool. You know, you lived in Mexico. Did you see Oaxaca? Did you see Playa del Carmen? Did you go to this thing? Did you do this thing? And every location has those like questions that people ask. And when I was living in Mexico, I was constantly being asked this question. And I was like, I'm just, I'm here because I want, I'm just staying in Mexico City. I just want to have a routine. I want to work. I want to accomplish something. But sometimes it can be viewed as like you're on a permanent vacation almost. And it's obviously not the fault of the people who say these things to me because they can say whatever they want. And I think it comes from a place of like excitement. So it's my fault that I'm like getting some guilt from that. Because I do feel very privileged to be able to travel the world and have so much freedom that I think it's then I feel guilty of like this person would be enjoying this so much more than me. Like, why is it being wasted on me if they have all these better ideas for how to like seize the moment? It's easy to like get into the scene and do the traveler thing and that's not really the biggest power of the lifestyle. Like the people that are leveraging it to grow their business you know, to focus on building the life that they want. That's the real power here. And that's going to be my third point. But I think it's your turn to make a point. Okay, my next one is never just traveling. I've learned over the past two years that two weeks is the worst amount of time to spend somewhere because you think you have time to check out the city and get a little work done. And you really fail at both. (laughs) I like this. This is a good take. Because two weeks is sort of like the classic vacation. (laughs) So I think I first experienced this in Rome where I had been at this kind of conference before, so I didn't have my laptop with me. And I was there for like four or five days and was just totally doing the tourist thing. Yeah. And it was so much fun. And I couldn't remember the last time I had tried to just travel and not work and travel at the same time. I felt like I invented vacation, basically. (laughs) But there's something to be said for when you're living in cool places, you forget to do that total switch off thing. Yeah, that totally makes sense. All right, my number three point and final point is under leveraging travel to grow the business, okay? Hang on to your seats here, people, because this is the big one. I've been saving my best for last. It's a bad podcasting technique, but here we go. Here's the fundamental observation. Wealthy people travel all the time. One of the things that my travels has given me access to is the hyper-wealthy, which is an interesting thing about travel. This is why you shouldn't be hanging out with travelers all the time because forget about them. Use the travel as the opportunity to connect with these people. So one of the interesting things about living this lifestyle is it's a hack to behaving wealthy before you're wealthy. There's a lot of implications to this. First off, if you live in a cheap place, you can own things a lot earlier than you could own something if you had high expenses of a first world economy. One of the things you talked about is you can isolate yourself all day long on a laptop in some random city somewhere, which is a privilege that maybe only a wealthy person could have. So now all of a sudden, that act of looking at your laptop in a cafe and going to the gym. I remember when I lived in Bali, I used to work two shifts all day long. I would go to the gym specifically because it would give me energy to work a night shift, at which point I would write an article about the things I was working on during the day. I was an insane person in my 20s. I had incredible energy, which is, by the way, as a side note, why long form is an opportunity for young people today because older people, they don't have the energy to write long form. (laughs) This idea that I could stare at my laptop all day long is something only a wealthy person could imagine. All of a sudden, I'm hacking myself into it. Let me bring in a a story from this book I love called Shogun by James Clavell. The book is about the first British person that rocked up to the Japans. And the book is so very dope, and you should read it. It's so cool. It's one of the best books I've ever, ever read. Japan at the time 
was one of the most stratified civilizations in the entire world. Like you're talking about zero social mobility, incredibly hierarchical. You could just like kill people that were below you because they were impolite. Now all of a sudden you get some ship captain who rocks up to the island and he's having private meetings with the king or the eventual shogun within a few short days. This is also an opportunity of travel, which is to cross-pollinate your knowledge and experience to get you access to higher levels of... So for example, like, you know, if you're coming from, say, America, and you have a digital marketing background, well, it might be hard to crack the top levels, or it might take a long time, not to say it's not a worthy pursuit to crack those top levels of like a, a high-level technology company in San Francisco. But if you get on an airplane and fly to the other side of the world, you might be able to connect with a hyper-wealthy owner of a company that could benefit from that skill set that you've had in the first world. So this is one way that you can use travel to sort of behave wealthy before you are wealthy. How can you use travel to connect with the people that you ultimately want to end up being like? That's another power. So again, the biggest travel wins for me are projects and people. And I think ultimately, like if that's what defines a home base, you can find this convergence in travel as a way to find a home in projects and people, as a way to get ahead in your career. What I hear a lot when people talk about travel mistakes and stuff, I always hear about like the quality of their desk or the quality of finding a Wi-Fi connection or the difficulty in being productive when you didn't find a gym yet. And I really think like, great, all that's fine. But compared to some of the mistakes I'm bringing up today, like not defining my job, being naive to time zone differential, and then under leveraging this idea of travel to grow the business, these are the real concerns. Like these are the things that are actually going to show up on your balance sheet. I'm sorry, but like the quality of your chair is not really going to correlate to the big wins or losses in your business. It's going to be who did you connect with? How are you able to leverage that flexibility to essentially get ahead in life and in your business? And so me, this is why I left this one to the end, because I think part of so much of what inspired me to talk about this with you today is the enormous opportunity I see in front of people with location flexibility. And I personally don't want to squander it and I don't want to see people squandering it, especially if what they want to do is grow an amazing business because it's all right there. One of the things that a member pointed out the other day regarding this point is that personal relationships are impossible to outsource, you know, and this is the one thing that you can do and you can leverage this amazing lifestyle to get it done. So that's my final point. We joked about it when we were talking about the concept of this episode but I was talking about like the Vietnamese factory tour as mm -hmm. like this amazing experience. And like for me, better than maybe going to the top tourist destination in town, because all of a sudden I'm in with people, with projects. I'm seeing a side of Vietnam that the traveler is never going to see because I'm talking to the factory owner and they're invested and they want to do business. And those are the experiences that it's interesting because they, they solve both things better in the end. Not only is my business growing, am I walking with an asset, but I also had this amazing travel experience, which is, you know, I went out to dinner and did shots with a factory owner in Vietnam. It was amazing, <laughs> you know? And like, and those are the things that at the end of the day, I really remember. And that also uh, moved the ball forward. I told you this, that one of my hot takes on travel at the moment is that at its core, traveling is consumerism. You're just like passively kind of taking in these new foods or new cultures or whatever, but it's still like just consuming something. And entrepreneurs, most people find meaning and value in their lives from creating. So you going to the factory was a way you made travel about creating something. And I think that's so much more valuable than just like, what can I consume in this place? Like, how can I actively create while this place is a part of it? I have one bonus one. My biggest travel mistake is that I moved to a tropical island to become a digital nomad. <laughs> it sounds nice. So the scene is, I had a remote job 
doing all that cool stuff in Saigon and Bangkok. Lost that job, had a bit of a side hustle and said, great, I'm going to go full in on this side hustle. Let's see if I can make it work. I've got some savings. So then what did I do? I moved to a Thai island and it was just like the worst decision ever. So inconvenient. (laughs) I had a really good setup in Bangkok with just like healthy food, good gym, waking up early. And then on the island, didn't have a good gym, was working out of a co-working space that I would get up and go to every day. My apartment was super basic, like didn't even have a coffee maker, no desk, no way to work from home. I was really stressed about bootstrapping. So I wasn't doing any cool island stuff. I wasn't watching the sunset. I was looking at my laptop the whole day. So it just didn't make sense of like, why am I trying to enjoy the fruits of the labor when I haven't done the labor yet? Just because I were cash and checks that you you hadn't deposited yet. Right. One of the things I've noticed a lot of times, I've made this mistake a lot of times, like it can be painful to cop to living in a big, crazy city. When I spent my time in the Philippines, in retrospect, I'm so thankful that my base was in Manila and it was tough. Not a lot of people are big Manila fans, you know, and neither was I. And so what I did was like what a lot of Filipinos did is I headed for the hills like every Friday and then it became Thursday and then it became Wednesday. But even if it was just three or four days in the city every week, the connections that I made in the city were super valuable in terms of the business. So having a foothold there, whereas if you're out on the island, you're swimming upstream. You know, it is kind of cool and surreal to be the only one. Like I have experiences where I'm like, oh my God, I'm actually running a business out here and everybody else is like, you know, going scuba dives or whatever. But I think that that surrealness is cool for a week or whatever, but it really wears off quickly when you realize that like, it's hard enough what I'm doing. I've already chosen a lifestyle that is more difficult than maybe a lot of other career paths I could take. Why am I going to make it more difficult on myself by, yeah, like putting the lifestyle in front of the business? Why Mm -hmm. not put the business in front of the lifestyle? And then I think the lifestyle that follows from the business first mindset actually becomes quite robust. Because now all of a sudden, my island getaways are, are happening with business partners or mentors with the Vietnamese factory owner, right? Like that's my getaway as opposed to like I was Mr. Getaway full time. But that's the digital nomad lie, right? Like sell all your stuff and go to an island and then try and start a business, which is totally not the way to do it. Yes. It's something you can do, but it's it's not like a lifestyle that makes a ton of sense if what you really want to do is grow a successful business that you know, makes you wealthy and opens up those islands indefinitely to you. One of the beautiful parts about the travel lifestyle is that you have the chance to thread the needle is to both be dropping out of maybe a traditional life, a traditional sense of responsibilities, traditional kinds of relationships, but you got to stay in on the other side. You can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You have to build that new career and job for yourself and build those new relationships for yourself. And if the old stuff gets replaced with holiday relationships, with holiday destinations, with unserious holiday people, the cows will come home. It will be good until it isn't, right? And that's, that was one of the main ideas I wanted to share here today. All right, so the speed round, your most underrated travel destination. I would like to say I object to the category wow. based on based on my number two point, okay. overrating places, underrating communities, but I'll still I'll answer. Bangkok. So many people, their first impression is... Underrated. Underrated. Bangkok. Yeah, so many people, it's just, it's dirty, it's gross, it's too much. But I just, I love the chaos about it. I think that makes it special. I do think Bangkok's underrated as well. My most underrated travel destination is Mexico. Continues to be Mexico. I think particularly for Americans, the way we consider Mexico, it's really stunning that we have such a incredible culture like right on our doorstep. And then the way we think about it, I think in large part because of the media coverage and stuff, certainly not been my experience going there and more and more uh, traveling entrepreneurs deciding to make Mexico their home base. Pretty cool. I was expecting to land in Mexico City and it just be skyscrapers, smoggy, crime, dirty. And it, it's so like neighborhoody. There were giant boulevards with trees. Everybody had these beautiful dogs they were walking. Like it was just, it was so beautiful. What it really whispers to me is 
be creative, which is strange. I, you know, it has this bohemian kind of arty vibe that is unmatched in any American city, straight up, I'd say. Well, most overrated travel destination. Once again, I did my travel mistake of spending two weeks here. So please let me back on the podcast. But Austin. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Go for it. I want to hear it. Where was the city? Like I showed up and they were like, there's tacos over there. There's some graffiti over here. And I was like, what? but where's the city? Like where, <laughs> where do you go to just like you can walk somewhere and you can't? Yeah. It was too spread out. I totally agree with you. My take on Austin was always like, all right, guys, you can't just take a standard cookie cutter American city, drop a bunch of weird people in vegan restaurants in here and expect me to like it. I'm too smart for this. <laughs> One of my trips over the past few years is I've been coming to grips with spending more time in Austin. And this next year, my intention is to spend a lot of time there. It's not yummy. And yummy is important for travelers. You know, It's delicious or it's nourishing in a way that you know, it's going to pay off in months and years and it doesn't have the palm trees. It doesn't have the mountains. It doesn't have the, bam, there's our culture right there. It's a longer term burn. And the things that make Austin great are hidden underneath that very ugly standard American city layout. More talk about Austin on this later. Your most important travel item. So yeah, I wanted to have something cool and travel hacky, but as a writer and a lover of books, I just have to go Kindle. It's amazing that you can just get any book you want anywhere. One of the things when I look back, I used to make digital nomad packing lists, which are embarrassing to review in retrospect. But looking back at like this first generation of digital nomads, the main thing that jumps out is that about half of our kit was things that are now an iPhone or an Android phone. That when I first traveled, I carried real books. I carried a flashlight. I carried a video camera. I carried, wait for it, a camera. <laughs> That's right. I carried a camera. When I, and essentially, I had a full backpack full of things that have now been reduced into a telephone. It's absolutely remarkable. A couple of travel things I'll mention too. I've mentioned the large monitor thing a lot on this show. Over the years, I've been a fan of, of having the second monitor. It makes me feel like I'm in a productive mood in a good office. I'll just mention something. I think a little bit in line with the Vietnamese factory thing, which is I travel with my golf clubs. Wow. Yeah. And so, okay, I get there a little slower. I got to check them. But when I arrive, I can go deeper. And it's the same thing with my bike. I travel, I'm like basically like a caravan at this point. <laughs> But because I've committed ahead of time, like I know where I'm going to be. We talked about that gravity and stuff. Now, all of a sudden, it's a lot easier for me to bring stuff with me. Whereas in the past, I would travel really light. For what reason? Right. Like, what are you optimizing for? Just like the one day every two months you travel, you don't have to wheel a suitcase? Well, no. <laughs> like- <laughs> I'll tell you where that tradition came from. The check-in tradition has a deeper one, which is that when I would arrive in a new place, I had no idea where I was going to stay. Okay. Okay, so this is pre-Airbnb. And so the reason I lived out of a backpack was because I had to walk around in that city for a while. Now, if I would have brought a golf clubs or whatever, which I did a few times, I would have to like figure out a place to stow them and then go around. And so I felt vulnerable. And even those days, one of the things I was thinking about the other day about travel and the old school is I felt like there was a lot more scams. The scams have kind of been weeded out a lot. But particularly in the early days of my travels, I felt very vulnerable with a lot of stuff. And so I optimized for finding my place. And I lost on the back end, which is I didn't have my hobbies with me. So find your golf clubs, I guess, is my tip, which is it's really interesting. A lot of travelers use things like salsa dancing or BJJ. These are like hobbies that they travel well. Mm -hmm. Golf clubs, not as well, but after this conversation, I'm going to be hanging out with my golf coach, who is amazing. His son is one of the top junior players in the country. I get to learn from his son a little bit, learn from him. I'm in like this community that is invested in a way that like the traveling community and the service industry that services them. There's, there's kind of like this thing that floats on top of society. Whereas mm-hmm. when you hang out with the local golfers, like 
they've got jobs here, they've got investments in that club or whatever, and you get to dif- see a different side of a place. And so this could be an interesting hack for people thinking about finding some depth while they're on the road or while they're exploring new places is bring whatever that hobby is and find those local people that are doing it. I was traveling with ice skates for about a year, which was fun. Are you kidding me? (laughs) No, I took up figure skating at the age of 28. (laughs) The next vacation destination that you're genuinely excited about. And the context, so many of us just haven't taken a vacation in years because the concept doesn't occur to us. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody. So So I've been planning this one for a few years now. I'm going to the Tokyo Olympics 2020 next summer. Wow. I'm so excited. And once again, not doing it because it's just like cool travel thing. I don't follow any sports, but I've always been fascinated by the Olympics because I'm because I don't have any grit. So the idea that someone could have grit for one thing for the entirety of their life and then whether they're successful or not depends on one instance of doing that thing for like two minutes Maybe. just blows my mind. What I'm excited about is sticking to some of our principles here. B location, A player. So one of my best friends is relocating to Geneva. And I'm going to take a vacation to go visit him in his new city. He's always been an amazing host. And Geneva is a place that's been on my radar for a little while because I'm really interested in watches and I'm really interested in cycling. So I feel like this, this vacation, Kyle, is going to be like the triple threat. Like it's going to be the best (laughs) vacation ever. Your favorite travel book. I read this book when I was living in Italy over the summer and exploring a lot of cool Roman stuff, which I'm super fascinated by. It's called Pagan Holiday by Tony Paratet, I think his name is. Basically, Romans invented tourism. Like 2,000 years ago, young people would take some time off after they finished studying and do like a Mediterranean loop and just to go see the sites and say that they did it exactly like we travel now. Sure. But then the author retraces their steps and while learning more about how they did it, he writes about how he's doing it. And it's also like the 90s. So that's also a historical look at travel because he doesn't have a phone or like you said, like he's just rocking up and doesn't know where he's staying. So it's like a really pure travel book as well because he's not just Googling stuff. I love it. That's so cool. My favorite travel book is Kitchen Nightmares by Anthony Bourdain. And I think it's in the theme of this episode, which is the book opens up with a description of Tony's craft and his career and how he approaches it and what it means to him. And when he combined that craft and career and knowledge with what was at the time a once in a lifetime opportunity to go to the other side of the world, the magic started to happen. And I think it's in line with what can in the best case happen for people in the entrepreneurship community who have a special vision for what they want to do, who are dedicated to their business and craft. And you combine that with a little bit of travel and the magic can happen. Is that the same book where I remember this story? It was his like first time traveling. And I think he was in Tokyo and he was so overwhelmed by everything and the idea of figuring out, going to the noodle place and figuring out how to do it, that he just went to Starbucks instead. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> yeah, right. And I love that because it's like, okay, if Anthony Bourdain like had to hide in Starbucks a few times, it's okay if you do it while you're traveling and you're like, I just need to go to Starbucks and then like watch Netflix today because I can't handle like how difficult this all is. <laughs> Absolutely no travel shaming <laughs> happening here at the TMBA <laughs> podcast. We know what you're all doing is tough out there. Good luck doing it. Kyla, thanks for joining us today. Hope you join us again soon. Thank you so much. Big up to Kyla from kylagardner.com. Head on over and check out her newsletter. It's amazing. You'll keep updated on everything that Kyla's up to. And I appreciate her coming on a show like this because it's somewhat you know, vulnerable to open yourself up to criticism. Look, some of this is, in reality, complaining. You could look at it that way about the privilege of travel. But the reality is it's, it's a complex topic, and you can't sum it up in an Instagram post. At the end of the day, I think we all can agree that travel is an amazing opportunity to not only see new places, 
but to grow as people and to grow those businesses. So I hope you're having a fun week growing your business. I got to get back to doing that here with the boss man. We got one more day together. Thanks for listening. We'd love to know your comments. Get to us in the comment section. Drop us an email. Drop us a voicemail. We appreciate it. Always. We will be back as always next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.